Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today on the podcast, we have a conversation on the Sermon on the Mount within the Story of God commentary series. Uh, we get to do a lot of, you know, different fun topics and, and things that we get to chat about. Um, we're going for you listeners, just to let you know, we aren't, this isn't going to be something that's like um, week after week after week consistent, but sporadically, we're going to be doing this um, general series on the story of God Bible commentary series, which Scott is the editor. So um, one of the editors rather. So um, Scott, you want to just kind of, I don't know, get started here, filling in everybody about what it is that this series is and what it's about and, and why you guys saw the need for it to be able to be on people's bookshelves. Yeah, well, let's start with this, that of the making of commentaries, there is no end. <laughs> and in a sense, sometimes I, I look at my shelves and I say, we don't need another commentary on any book in the New Testament. And yet... Every about every 10 years, you say, you know, life is changing. Preachers are facing and pastors are facing different issues. And scholarship is accumulating so that the new commentaries are going to take into consideration what the old commentaries did and all the new research. So. I want to start with that. The second thing I want to start with is that um, long ago, in the late 80s and early 90s, an editor at Zondervan named Jack Kuhachik, he's no longer there, designed a commentary series called the NIV Application Commentary, which we call the NIVAC series. The series was designed to do something that other commentary series don't do. Most commentary series, most commentaries are either exegetical, historical, intense, scholarship, Greek, Hebrew, mm -hmm. all kinds of footnotes, or mm -hmm. at least interaction with scholars. Or they tend to be devotional, expository type things written by pastors. So Jack wanted, uh, Ed Zondervan, wanted to come up with a series that asked professors to model how to expound a text, do the exegetical thing that scholars do, in interaction somewhat with scholarship, not heavily footnoted, and then move into how the story works, to, or how the Bible passage can be applied today. But the genius of what the NIVAC series did was that it had an intermediary section, and it was called Bridging the Context. In other words, the context of the Bible, bridging the context, and then application. So there were three sections to every passage. Now, as it turns out, that uh, Bridging the Context section was gruelingly difficult for professors, and it was very inconsistent in actual application. Some professors, and this is what I learned to do, I wrote the first section, uh, expo exposition of a text, I did say Galatians and First Peter. 
Then I wrote the third section on applying and how I thought it should be applied. Then I sat there and stared and thought my way through how I went from the, what the Bible says to how I would apply it. And over time, well, I wrote two commentaries like this, Galatians and First Peter. I got to where it became routine and it became how I approached the Bible all the time. And I have all kinds of friends who after they had written one of these commentaries, wanted to write another one, or whenever they were doing something, they wanted to go through these three phases because it became such an important part or an integral part of how they were thinking. So that's how the NIVAC series started. Well, then times change. Twenty-some years later, uh, Katja Kavret is now the, was now the editor at Zondervan, still is, and she approached me and said, would you be a general editor for the New Testament series? And it was going to be based on the TNIV, which, you know, was the new uh, Zondervan Bible. Right. Well, in the process, the TNIV got in all kinds of trouble or whatever. It Not so much trouble as people were not using it the way they thought it would be used. So by the time the, uh, the commentary series came out, the new one, The Story of God, it was uh, no longer the TNIV, but the NIV 2011. Now, let me back up and fill in some details. In the meantime, we eliminated the bridging the context, and Katya admitted, and I admitted, and several others admitted, that that was not only very difficult for authors to do, it was very inconsistent from author to author, and it didn't come off as well as it needed to come off. So... We developed three sections, but they were completely different. The first section is hearing the Bible or hearing the text. And that was based on listening to the Bible in the context of the Bible's story. So we, we changed uh, the first section to uh, reading the Bible in light of the Bible's larger story. This has been uh, one of the most rewarding sections of the entire commentary series as they come out. But what we've realized is that different authors have different stories in the Bible that they operate with. So this is understandings of the narrative kind of, yeah, of how the Bible's put together. Uh, some people, you know, operate with slightly different narratives or in some cases quite different narratives. And the result is that they operate with a story, but the story is different than another author who uses the other story or a different story. So, so we have hear the story, then we have uh, explain the story. Uh, so in the hear the story, we have the text along with uh, principal texts in the Old Testament and some Jewish literature that influence how we read that text in the larger uh, narrative. With, with some introduction to the text. Then we have explained the text, which then is a traditional um, exposition, explanation, exegesis of the text with some interaction with scholars. Other people don't interact as much. Some interact more and more. I just got a commentary, a wonderful commentary on Second Peter from Judy Deal, who was at Denver for many years, and her commentary um, uh, will be published probably Sometime, sometime in 2019. But uh, she doesn't spend a whole lot of time interacting with other people, and this has been one of the 
to me, one of the values of this commentary is you don't get distracted with trying to debate with other scholars in the footnotes or anywhere else. Uh, we bring in things when we think they're necessary. Then the third is how to live the story. And that is roughly similar to the application, except there is a huge difference between lived theology or living the story and application. Right. Uh, because it, it, it recognizes some of the hermeneutic uh, that are involved uh, and the hermeneutic being story. So that's been that, that's been one of the that's sort of the genius or and I don't mean by that brilliance. What I mean, it's the uh, the very essence and the distinctive features of the story of God Bible commentary. Yeah, that's really good background. I wonder, you know, just hearing you talk, the question that got stirred in my mind is, I wonder if you could articulate maybe the, uh, the why the temptation exists to be satisfied with information without letting it um, sink into to transformation, I guess you could say. That's probably a better word than uh, application that we sometimes, you know, like to use. Or, or like you said, the, that commentary series was the application, which is things should apply to our life. But at the end of the day, our, our, our hope and our, our goal is to live that story in the way of uh, um, a transformed person, The you know, that is the Romans 12, able to um, test and approve through the, the transformation of our mind, um, what God's will is for our lives in their current context. So I wonder if you got any insights on just why that can kind of be a general temptation and challenge sometimes with scholarship. Well, okay, scholar, all right, there's a couple, about about 50 things that could be said here. Uh, the first thing is uh, scholars have traditionally written exegetical, academic, historical, uh, intensive commentaries. They, they don't write how to live the Christian life. They write what Paul intended in this text. Okay, so that's, I would say that's, the primary thing that that needs to be seen. Sure. That's just been their mode of operation, their modus operandi for all these years. So getting academics to move from, let's say, explain the story to live the story can be very difficult, even though personally they do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't write like that, and they don't think like that. And a lot of these professors who write uh, commentaries are, are not pastors. Every pastor, every, every Sunday, and usually more often than that, reads scripture or works with scripture to an audience and seeks to make it relevant to, those, to that audience. It is, it is a, a stereotype of an old-fashioned sermon, which still happens, and I grew up with at times, Mm-hmm. is that people would explain the text in an expository way, mm-hmm. exegetically, intense, and then only at the end they would say, and I've heard this sir, this prayer, now, Lord, take the meditations of my heart and the explanations of the text and apply them to the believers, and then they walked off the stage. In other words, application was something the Spirit was supposed to do. They weren't about to do any of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's that is a pretty serious issue. So, uh, 
Let, let me just tell you that as a general editor for the New Testament commentaries, that most of, I would say, almost all of the first-time authors really struggle with live the story. They just don't have an instinct for it. They could make a comment here and there, but they haven't taught enough Sunday school classes. Mm -hmm. They haven't preached to an audience long enough to be able to do this easily and instinctively. And I, uh, when I did Galatians way back with the NIVAC commentary, I made, I made the discovery that I had to do this all the way through Galatians chapter 1, and then basically through every bit of it away, because it took me several attempts at several passages to figure out even what I was doing. So I often tell uh, the, uh, the authors uh, who are under my care for this that it may take a while for them to figure out how to do the third part on live the story because it's not instinctive. And yet, sure. the, the key thing here is those who, who discern and who work most carefully with the text, let's say parts one and two in this series, hear the story and explain the story, are the ones who ought to have better suggestions for live the story. What, I've, what, what many of us are aware of is that many pastors have all kinds of ideas about live the story, and they do everything they can to make the explain the story fit what they want it to mean. In the, so in other words, they want parts one and two to fit three, and the professors are, are very good at one and two, and they're clueless on, on part three. Yeah. This, is, this has been uh, a process. Now, I, I want to bring something else up about this, and that is, when we did the NIVAC series, one of our goals was to find authors who were coming of age in evangelical, uh, as evangelical professors. So we didn't take all the likely suspects of people who are um, famous. Instead, in many ways, we took, we took younger people. Uh -huh. We took people that weren't, weren't well known and at the time, and, and today they're well-known, but at that time, they weren't as well-known, even though many of them had some academic positions. So when we did the Story of God commentary, we, we sought for authors in the same kind of category. Uh, promising, not as well-known, some people who are not known at all. And we also, and I'm very proud of this, we worked hard at racial and ethnic diversity, mm -hmm. and at acquiring female uh, authors. And not only did we do that, I believe in all of evangelicalism, the Story of God commentary series is the most diverse and has the most women present as authors of any commentary in history. That, so that's so, significant work. Yeah, that's important things to be able to have a, such a collection like that. So we strove for diversity, mm -hmm. and we strove for um, people who understand parts one and two and three. Now, let me give you an example, and we'll talk to to him down the road. Dennis Edwards 
who wrote the commentary, the Story of God Bible Commentary on First Peter, um, has a PhD in New Testament studies from American University, a really good scholar. I've known Dennis for probably 30 years. Dennis was a student at Trinity, he was a student of mine, and he became a, a church planting pastor in New York, and it was has been pastoring almost his entire career. And yet he was a New Testament scholar as well. So we asked Dennis, as a pastor and as a New Testament scholar, to write a commentary. And I, I can honestly tell you, there are things in his commentary, instincts in his commentary, that are unlike any commentary that we will ever see or that we do see on the market today. Dennis is a pastor of with 30 years of experience. He's an African-American pastor with ethnic experience that is unlike most of the types of people who write these commentaries and who read these commentaries. And, and yet he's a professor who knows how to dig into the text and work it really well. So um, we're really proud of the diversity, and I think you're going to see the same thing with Judy Deal's commentary on 2 Corinthians. We see the same thing with Lynn Coick's commentary on Philippians, a sensitivity to women, to issues that face marginalized people that you don't see many times with white males who are blind to their own power, their own status, their own situation, and so therefore they have to work really hard at crossing boundaries, whereas some other authors are already outside those boundaries and they're hearing things and seeing things that uh, others are just not going to see as well or as instinctively. And you as our listeners, you'll get the chance to be able to you know, hear all of these different people as we'll be going along with these different conversations and um, within the series. So one of them, you pretty much kicked it off, right, Scott, with your Sermon on the Mount uh, commentary on, within this series. And I wonder why you decided to do a whole commentary on the Sermon on the Mount instead of uh, just incorporate it into the um, book of Matthew that oftentimes it gets done in commentary series. Okay. Here's a, here's a good, this is some insight on what happened. So I'm the general editor for the New Testament uh, commentaries. Um, and we have associate editors, Lynn Coick, Michael Bird, and Joel Willits. We're sitting in uh, an office at Wheaton College with Lynn Co uh, with uh, Katya Kavret from Zondervan. I think that's the only ones in the room. And we hammer out the big ideas, the intent, the mission, the purpose, etc., and um, spent a lot of time on that. Then uh, we were supposed to come to the table with lists of names of potential authors, but it started with this. It started with Katya looking at me. She said, as general editor, what, what book of the New Testament would you like to write a commentary on? And I said, the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, the conversation, of course, got kind of funny. Right? The Sermon on the Mount is not a book in the New Testament. <laughs> it's three chapters in a, in a book called Matthew. And I said, well, I'm Anabaptist, and the Sermon on the Mount is a book in the New Testament for Anabaptists. And she, she agreed, although we had already worked on this. I'd asked if I could do this. <laughs> uh, because there was at that time some plans of maybe adding some other volumes 
Um, and we're, we're still talk about this occasionally. But uh, so I did the Sermon on the Mount. And when Rodney Reeves wrote his Matthew commentary, which, by the way, is a really fine commentary and display of pastoral wisdom, because he, too, was a pastor for many years, along with being a New Testament professor. Um, he, he wrote his own commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it's much shorter, than, of course, than mine. But uh, they gave me the freedom to do that one, and I was— uh, I relished it because, and I, I should, I, I think we can make this transition now. I relished it because when I was in college, I fell in love with the Sermon on the Mount. When, as a college sophomore and junior, I discovered Dietrich Bonhoeffer and read The Cost of Discipleship. Mm -hmm. And I remember, I mean, I, I often say this, that I read The Cost of Discipleship in college, but I didn't have any idea what I was reading. Um, I thought I was understanding it, but the older I get now, the more I understand what Bonhoeffer was doing. And it was quite different than what I thought what I thought he was doing, but that's that's what what it means to grow. So um, I I read Bonhoeffer and I became fascinated by the Sermon on the Mount. But I I discovered uh, that my my Christian college, Cornerstone University, and the sorts of churches that I attended uh, were not all that interested in the Sermon on the Mount. And so it, 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 the Sermon on the Mount was like a burning coal that had been, whose embers had all been, embers had all been cooled in me. And so what I wanted to do is study the Sermon on the Mount um, and think about it more just wasn't really an option, a live option for what I was doing. So in seminary, I believe it was the first summer, it may have been the second summer in seminary, I spent the entire summer studying the Sermon on the Mount and in particular working really hard on each of the Beatitudes and going through every reference to those terms in the Old Testament. And that work that I did is still is still a part uh, is a part of the commentary that I wrote. Uh, but it was at it was when I was in seminary that I started focusing on the Gospel of Matthew. So that meant I got to do some Sermon on the Mount stuff, and then I did my PhD on Matthew chapter ten. Uh, I thought of doing the Sermon on the Mount, but um, I thought uh, the there was a bit of a fear of God that I would have nothing to say after all the scholarship that has been accomplished on the Sermon on the Mount. But when I got to teach at Trinity in my early years, I started to teach a course on discipleship where I did a lot of work on the Sermon on the Mount, and I read the Sermon on the Mount with my Greek classes. So I have been working on the Sermon on the Mount since the 1970s, teaching it since the 1980s, and whenever I taught Jesus of Nazareth, which I taught every year at, uh, at North Park, I, uh, I always had some time spent on the Sermon on the Mount. So that's why uh, when I was given a chance of which book of the New Testament to choose, I chose the Sermon on the Mount. Made a, an easy decision, huh? So An easy decision. Oh, yeah. Even without a book, it functions in many ways as a book within a book, uh, for for many pastors, for many churches, and for 
some rich and strong Christian traditions. Well, maybe um, that would be helpful to kind of set up. I know part of it is in the, you know, you look at the structure of, of Matthew and the different cor- discourses that, you know, when you, you, you look at them from a zoomed out point of view, um, they have distinct functions and, and purposes, it really seems, from Matthew's perspective. So um, I wonder if maybe you could share a little bit of insight on that. Well, we, uh, there are five discourses in Matthew, and uh, there have been some very clever attempts, I don't think successful attempts, to prove that each one of them corresponds to one of the books of the Pentateuch. But uh, there is the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7, three chapters. There is the missionary discourse in Matthew 10, one chapter. There is the parable discourse in Matthew 13, one chapter. There is often called the church discourse in Matthew 18. And then there is the eschatological discourse in Matthew 23 through 25. Again, three chapters. So uh, this kind of um, balance is characteristic of the Gospel of Matthew. But the Sermon on the Mount to me is the greatest. I, I believe it's a collection mostly. I think Jesus preached a sermon and uh, I would say he probably started with the Beatitudes. We don't know for sure, but it sounds like that. But when you compare Matthew 5 through 7 with the Gospel of Luke, you realize that Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Plain, is much shorter. So I have opted for the view I've chosen uh, as a result of, I have to tell you, a lot of work that... Um, I think it is a collection of the teachings of Jesus, and as such, it is a beautiful collection of the, the latest and best teachings of Jesus, all put together in a fairly um, organized way mm-hmm. so that people will understand what Jesus wants of people who follow him. And one of the most stunning dimensions of the Sermon on the Mount is when you get to the end, the crowd is amazed. What are they amazed about? Not at what he said, but what kind of person could have said these things? Because yeah. said, you know, who has this kind of authority? What kind of person is this? And they were amazed at him. So I, I believe that it is very important for us to read the Sermon on the Mount in such a way that it draws our attention to the utter significance of the teacher of Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, who has ascended a mountain, the same language used of Moses, who has ascended a mountain like Moses and expounds for his followers who are kingdom people what it means to live in the kingdom of God and how he expects his followers to live. If they are captured by Jesus, they are under King Jesus as their Lord and Messiah and how they're expected to live with one another. So to me, the big picture of the Sermon on the Mount is that yes, it is a brilliant capturing of the ethics of Jesus. I think that's fair to say, but we should be captured by the person speaking and teaching and preaching 
more than by what is said in that way. We should say, wow, this is what Jesus, the Lord, is calling us to do. He is good. He is, he is a genius. He is teaching us with utter clarity what God wants, and we need to be thankful to him and obedient to him because he is our Lord. Yeah, and that's the you know that's the clarifying point about how important it is and the the role that it plays in the story of God. That it's it's this person Jesus and the amazement of what he's saying because who he is that l- allows it to play such prominence in that story that is so important for us now. I mean, it's not just a you know something that people are idyllic supposed to do or um, you know somebody to do on our behalf but that this is for all Jesus followers um, something that he's inviting us to obey him in and the impact on the church is you know is going to be huge right I, well I I think that the, the more often we draw people's attention to Jesus and to his accomplishments his work for us and his teachings for us the better we are going to be as the church. We need to take all our guidance and wisdom from him and listen to him. And to do that, we have to read his words or listen to his words, know his words, and know how to take his words and live them in our world today. Yeah. And so if you were to really encourage a pastor with anything to be able to, uh, or a leader in the church, to be able to help the people in their church to live out the Sermon on the Mount and, um, you know, more and more in their day, what would you encourage them with or really instruct them maybe to, to, to try to make that a reality? Well, you know, I, uh, that's why I wrote the commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, so I'd want them to read it. Um, but, and I also make uh, suggestions of what I think are the are some top things to read, like Bonhoeffer, Dale Allison's The Moral Imagination, uh, there's Robert Gulick's brilliant commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. There are, there are some great resources. But I, I would say, you know, I'm often asked, what's the best book on this? And I often say the Bible. Uh, I would encourage people to read the Sermon on the Mount to meditate on the Sermon on the Mount and let its words wash over them and soak them with its vision. And at the same time, let those words be baptized into the words of the rest of the Bible so that they don't think that this is just something that they can pluck from the sky and disconnect, but that they see it as a fulfillment, as what Jesus said, that his words are not uh, uh, an abolishing, an annulling of the words of the law and the prophets, but he fulfills them. This is, this is Moses um, and David and the prophets uh, upgraded to the newest and the fullest level with Jesus as the Messiah. So I, I would, my, my recommendation is focus on the Sermon on the Mount, read it carefully, read it often, and uh, let God, God's Spirit, be open to God's Spirit to work in each person as they listen to that sermon so that it begins to make an impact on them. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it was the Living Out, the Sermon on the Mount, that helped the 
it allowed the kingdom to take root then. And I know for you listeners, man, this is what's important to be able to um, let that very same message and the living out of that message and the story of God that we get to play in our day today, um, such an important thing. So uh, thanks for joining us today. We look forward to be with you next time as uh, we'll continue this conversation and we'll be doing these conversations, you know, um, sporadically on the, the story of God commentary series. But we're grateful as always to have you join us and we look forward to be with you next time as we continue our conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Thank you.